1: Dot com and definitely check out those shows as well. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi is the author of How to Raise an Anti-Racist. He is one of America's foremost historians and leading anti-racist scholars. He is a National Book Award winning and number one New York Times bestselling author of five books for adults and three books for children. Dr. Kendi is the Andrew W. Mellon Professor in the Humanities and the Founding Director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. He is a contributing writer to The Atlantic and a CBS News racial justice contributor. He is the host of a new action podcast, Be Anti-Racist. In 2020, Time Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. He was awarded a 2021 MacArthur Fellowship, popularly known as the Genius Grant. He is the author of The Black Campus Movement, which won the W.E.B. Du Bois Prize, and stamped From the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, which won the National Book Award for Nonfiction in 2016. At 34 years old, Dr. Kendi was the youngest ever winner of the MBA for Nonfiction. He grew up dreaming about playing in the MBA, and ironically, he ended up joining the other NBA. Dr. Kendi also produced five number one New York Times bestsellers. How to Be an Anti-Racist, an international bestseller, has been translated into several languages and made several best books of 2019 lists and was described in the New York Times as the most courageous book to date on the problem of race in the Western mind. He's also published many academic essays in journals and op-eds in numerous periodicals, including the New York Times, the Atlantic salon, time, and many more. He has commented on a series of national, international, and local media outlets like CNN, ABC, CBS, BBC, OWN, BET, and SiriusXM. A sought-after public speaker, Dr. Kendi has delivered thousands of addresses over the years at colleges, universities, bookstores, and more places. Dr. Kendi strives to be a hardcore anti-racist and a softcore vegan. Dr. Kendi is also the author of Night Racism which was also published at the same time as How to Raise an Anti-Racist. Dr. Kendi lives in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome, Dr. Kendi. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to read books to discuss how to raise an anti-racist and also, good night racism.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you for having me on.
1: (laughs) I have to tell you, I read this book to my kids and my daughter was like, but no one's racist. Why would, like, what's the, and I was like, that's Mm -hmm. so great. I was like, well, you know, some people used to be in the olden days. People did feel badly, and they're like, "But they're just people; just have different skin tones now." And I'm like, "Well, <laughs> like learning moment here, <laughs> which you would uh, have lots to say about." So, anyway, if you were in that moment with my daughter, what what would be the perfect thing for me to have said?
0: Well, actually, well, first, that's one of the beauties about books, is it not? Like, it sparks those those conversations with with our children, um, and. I would have actually asked her, so what is it, what do you think it means to, to, to be racist? Uh, I, I did
1: ask her that. that. I did it, ask her that. So she knew uh, the definition, you know. Yeah,
0: and, and, and really sort of just talk through the, the definition, especially, if, you know, she says that and, and then start maybe pro- providing examples of people or instances in which people may be, in which people may be, the, the definition may apply or it may not apply. And, you know, to really get her or to get our child sort of thinking, which also is great for critical thinking, which, you know, is great to sort of prevent prejudicial thinking.
1: Okay. Well, I didn't mean to start by totally putting you on the spot there. But anyway, (laughs) now that we've worked our way through that, your book was not only really helpful and instructive and interesting, thought-provoking, all that good stuff, but there was so much... Memoir in this story, there was so much personal experience weaved throughout, which I found so compelling and the story that you talk about with your wife and your pregnancy and her pregnancy and having to stay in the hospital for all those months, which I had twins, so I relate to the bed rest thing, <laughs> no fun at all, and the fear and the NICU like all of the things that you went through, and then how you could use every moment as an example of something else through when your daughter was born and the play group or daycare that she went to, I mean, everything in your life and then your cancer, which I didn't I mean, that was horrible. I'm so sorry you had to go through that too. I mean, I feel like I went on this whole journey with you in this book, (laughs) which I wasn't expecting. I thought it would be more like a nonfiction. I I just didn't expect to find so much of you in your heart and soul versus your academic sort of thinking in this book. And it was just to make, it was so, why did you do that? Tell me about it. Tell me how how this whole book came to be.
0: Well, I I think that to to, to be anti-racist and even to raise a child to be, Anti-racist is, is not a static sort of thing. It is indeed a journey. And it, it, it's a process. It's a behavior. Um, it is us reflecting on the times in which we made mistakes and, and we need to say things better or do things differently. And, and I wanted to sort of convey that movement, that sort of process. Um, and I also, particularly as a, as a, as a parent, who also studies racism and talks and engages with people all the time about being anti-racist. I wanted to talk about how this was difficult for me too. Yeah. And the difficulty and the fear that parents face is normal. Like, you know, it, and it's even something that that I had, but but that shouldn't prevent us uh, mm-hmm. from having these tough conversations w- with our children and protecting them. Uh, by teaching them about
1: racism. Interesting. Well, throughout the book you gave many examples and healthcare for black women and pregnancy and statistics related to, you know, fetal health and all of these things. Like everything related to something personal in your story. And even your brother's sort of misdiagnosis at first. I loved that story when maybe you could tell it probably better than me of when the teacher called home and said, why is your why is your son not talking and i guess your dad was like what are you, like what are you talking about are you crazy <laughs> <laughs> like you're, he talks all the time like what's going on and how like learning disability and like speech impediment all this stuff tell me about that moment and and how that's an example like a learning moment that you shared in the book as well
0: well yeah my brother i believe when he was in fourth grade i think 10 years old he was not speaking that much in in class and and we suspect he wasn't speaking that much in class because the teacher wasn't respecting him was was thinking that there was a problem he potentially was 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 she was thinking that because he was he was black and and what we find according to studies is that when young children are experiencing bigotry they they typically it typically leads to sort of depression mm-hmm. it, it typically causes them to close up it certainly doesn't allow them to be expressive and and so we suspect That's what was happening in in that class. And for, I I believe, seven and a half years, my brother had been diagnosed with with, with having a learning disability and was uh, going through special education classes as a result. But that teacher, we suspect, was very pivotal in that school, actually trying to change his diagnosis to what's known as intellectual disability now, or what was then mental retardation, which was a more serious and stigmatizing, you know, sort of diagnosis. And, and we think it was all because of their relationship, right? Because he was responding. And, and it just goes to show how, particularly for kids with with, with disabilities who, who may not have the ability to express what's happening to them, we have to protect them too we have to actually be even more protective you know of them because they are facing they're facing racist discrimination and i wanted to really document how all different types of kids are facing it so if you're if you're a teacher who, who is white and you believe that you know white people are naturally smart and you have a child who indeed has a learning disability. You can't even fathom that because the child is white. So you're not gonna allow that child to get to get services and and, and help that that child would need.
1: Hmm. You had so many amazing passages in the story of your life, basically. Oh, tell me about more about when your daughter started daycare and she would only play with the white doll and what that brought up with you and your wife and You know, all of that and how it started with you guys laughing and then she kept playing with the doll.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So if if I think if many parents, particularly many white parents, fear their child. Like one day saying something that's racist and sort of embarrassing and bringing shame to the family, then what many black parents of black children fear? is their child um, sort of internalizing the idea of white superiority. And I, when my child was a little over one years old, I remember going to pick her up from daycare and she was playing with a white doll. And, uh, you know, I put the doll to the side and she sort of cried, but she came and, and we went home. The next day it was harder to get the white doll <laughs> out of her hands and each successive day that week. It got harder and harder to the point in which she had an all-out tantrum and didn't want to leave uh, the doll and didn't even want to come home. Which was different because whenever we would arrive, she'd be happy to go with us. So we were like, "What's what's going on here? Like, is this a symbol that she is 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 you know is is, is internalizing this this idea of white superiority?" And we didn't know, but what we found out. The fifth day, which was the day that both of us came and she loves it when both of us come to pick her up. So she actually put the doll aside and came and hugged us. We feel like we won at least one round. (laughs) And after that, I actually went around to the toy chest in the daycare and saw that every doll that they had looked white. So she didn't even have another option. And I use that you know, in the book to talk about that for even a one-year-old, the environment that we're raising them in, the dolls that we're choosing for them, the books that we're choosing for them, even the people that we're choosing to be around them are making a difference or could be making a difference and is shaping them to, 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 to understand like who they value. And they may not even have a choice in the matter, mm-hmm. uh, which in that case happened to, to my daughter. and We should allow our children, to, to to young children, to see the beauty of the human rainbow, by right? Allowing them to see it. To see us all. Very true.
1: So, did you? What did you end up doing? Did you get the daycare any more dolls?
0: Or what did you? Oh yeah, do? they they I, I let them know. Okay, and, and they made a change.
1: <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> Does she still go there? No, she's too old now. She's.
0: Yeah, she's she she continued to go there. They made the change. I think they recognized, uh, you know, that that was a problem. Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay making changes this six months of chemotherapy po- followed by surgery that you went through and having to recover the scene at home when you got back and you were on the couch and your daughter was so sad and crying seeing you laying there in your robe but tell me about tell me about that moment and and how it feels to parent through pain of your own and fear for your own mortality i mean that you had stage four cancer i mean that's so terrifying i'm so sorry you had to go through that
0: yeah, it was uh, so after the surgery, and I, you know, I came home. Well, after not only the surgery but also you know a week in the hospital, you know, I came home and of course I had bandages on, on my my belly and you know I'm sitting on the couch um, with a a robe and my sort of chest open. So my my daughter came and can see the bandages and she started looking at the bandages. I believe she was about two two and a half years old and she just started you know crying and I was of course asking her you know what's wrong and what's wrong and you know she wouldn't say and eventually you know I asked her I was like do you want to have do you want some band bandages like daddy and you know she she stopped crying and started sniffling and said yes um <laughs> and so my my partner Sadiqa who was there went and got her bandages and and she started putting them on her So but Belly in the same place that, that I had mine. And really, for the next few months, there was no gift she liked more than band-aids. And in a way, we healed together. And, and that that story I sort of shared in the context of empathy mm-hmm. and how studies show that, you know, at two years old, our kids start understanding and learning empathy. They could feel what other people are feeling. But but studies show that we also have the capacity to either nurture empathy or sort of block its growth mm-hmm. and to nurture empathy is to nurture a child who can look at someone who doesn't look like them, who doesn't worship like them, who doesn't live near them. And when they see that person hurting, they hurt. That's the type of anti-racist empathy. We have to nurture in our children.
1: Interesting. Yeah. My daughter is so sensitive that, uh... The other day she said, I, "I sometimes I don't like to draw the number eight because an eight just seems sad. So I start feeling sad for the eight and crying. I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> oh
0: my I can't. That is great. I, I mean, can you imagine if all humans were like that? I mean, oh my gosh. we had that, if we felt that deeply.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've, imagine even if all my kids felt like that, I would never get out of the house. It's like impossible. <laughs> a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are thirty-five thousand therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get ten percent off your first month. That's betterhelp H E L P dot com slash moms don't have time. Okay, so in the beginning you set up This, your whole construct, which many people were already, I'm sure, familiar with from your other book, which everyone in the world probably has at this point, (laughs) which must make you feel really good. But how it's not enough to not be racist, you have to actively be anti racist, which is something different altogether. So, for anyone who's not as familiar with this, could you just explain? what the difference is, like take a scenario and explain like if you were being racist, not racist and anti-racist in such and such a setting, like, and what you should really be doing or what the main takeaway is for people who want to raise anti-racist children.
0: Well, I mean, if you, I think the starting point of any serious conversation about race and racism should be with a racial disparity. So, you know, black people being disproportionately impoverished in this country. The the question is why. And so some people who are going to express a racist idea to explain that disparity by saying black people are poorer because they're lazier, they don't work as hard, there's something wrong or inferior about black people. To take an anti-racist position is to say that the cause of that disparity between those groups, and not we're not talking about individuals, but between groups is this history and even the presence of of racist policies and, and, and practices that are causing these disparities. But going back to the first person who would say, well, it's because Black people are lazy. When people point that out, the typical response that we have is, no, no, I'm not racist. So when somebody says, you know, you just said a racist idea, the typical response is just to deny it. But there are times in which someone who's striving to be anti-racist expresses a racist idea and they have a different response. And that is to, to think about it, reflect on it and admit, you know what? Yes, that was a racist idea and I'm going to change and I'm going to be better. And that's another reason why in, in how to raise an anti-racist, I, I wanted to really show the mistakes that I made as a parent. Even the, 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 some of the mistakes that my parents made in terms of raising me and certainly teachers so that people can see people making mistakes and growing and developing and changing. And, and, and that's really the process of being anti-racist.
1: Did you see yourself as a child becoming this advocate and, and lightning rod and, I don't even know the right words, expert, I guess that's a better word, complete expert and changing world thinking around this topic? Like, would you have predicted that when you were eight? Like, what do you want to be then?
0: No, I would not have predicted that. If it was up to me, I'd be. When I was eight years old, I would have been preparing to play with Steph Curry in the NBA Finals. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I I certainly even by the time I got to college, I wasn't necessarily, you know, thinking that this route, you know, was 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 for me. But I, I think once I really started studying just the vast amount of of inequities and injustices. And violence and 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 you know young and old people thinking there's something wrong with them as a or superior about them as opposed to the problem being more policy and structural the, the, the more I gravitated to, to understanding it to wanting to speak about it to wanting to abolish it did
1: you find this path easy or hard to achieve like because you, you've essentially created a niche, if you will. Right. That's like, and you are also, you know, historian of African history and you've written like what five bestsellers. I mean, what can you not do at this point? Did you, did the path seem clear to you as you were going through it or was it difficult to sort of pave the way?
0: It was difficult and it, you know, it remains you know difficult, you know, even now, because I think my work has sort of broken through and it's reaching everyday people different backgrounds, different ideologies, you know, there, there are people who who would rather things to remain as they are, and, and so instead of engaging with me and engaging with the work, they distort and misrepresent the work and then attack it, um, and how do you respond to that? I can't, like, respond to something I didn't say or don't believe, so that's what's been probably the hardest, you know, part, but I also know that there's a history to this. And, and you know, I, as a historian, I, I know that during the enslavement era, slaveholders and even Jim Crow segregation, Jim Crow segregation is literally legislated for ignorance. Mm-hmm. And and not just ignorance of, of Black people, even ignorance of, of many white people. And, and to keep us divided, to keep us thinking that, that, that we're each the problem as opposed to those who are ruling us.
1: So this is you know, heavy intellectual, critical thinking, what do you do to get away from this? Like, do you still play basketball? Like, what do you like to do when you're not engaged in this? How do you like release, let go, have fun, whatever?
0: So I think I've hung up my sneakers, so I don't play (laughs) basketball as much anymore, but I, of course, watch uh, sports. I watch basketball and, and baseball and football. I read a ton. You know, and I think reading for me is probably the most peaceful thing that, that I do. You know, I of course exercise, try to enjoy family and friends. And you know, I'm my my wife, she she it's always interesting when whenever in public light someone sort of says that I'm so serious because privately I'm, she says I'm a goofball. And I, you know, I mean <laughs> life is is certainly a life one that where we should create joy. Uh, but it's that joy and that closeness to joy that I have that I want everyone to, to, to have, or more so I, I want to ensure that no one is being blocked from that joy by the injustices of our society.
1: And when you read for fun, what do you like to read? Like what's something good you've read lately? Or...
0: So I, I tend to read books on race or racism or American history or, or, you know, or novels, uh, you know, I'm reading a book called "Torn Apart" by Dorothy Roberts, which is a really serious investigation of what's the, the, known as the child welfare system. And and even though this system is supposed to protect children and families, you know, Dorothy Roberts, Professor Roberts, actually finds that it's not. It's actually doing the very opposite, and, and she calls for a complete overhauling of it, if not elimination of it. And so it's. You know, I'm obviously because I'm thinking a lot about children now, those are some types of books that I'm reading.
1: <laughs> do you let your daughter watch TV, YouTube? Where are we on the Instagram? What what where are we on the screen stuff with her?
0: So she watches just TV from time to time. But you know, obviously we don't want to just sit her in front of the TV if if possible. I mean, and and I think that sometimes that's all we can do as parents, especially during the pandemic, you know. <laughs> You know, but we try to, to, to move her away from that or to to have constructive things for it. All right.
1: I think my kids are like the biggest YouTube addicts. I it's embarrassing <laughs> at this point. Yeah. That's like My son wants to be a YouTuber when he grows up. He's seven. So okay. like I don't think that's a thing, but it's okay. You know. Anyway. Okay. Well, having written so many books yourself, what advice would you give to aspiring authors?
0: So I would I would first give expiring authors the advice that when it comes to the book idea, you know, we have to figure out, you know, what, we have to really be able to be extremely self-reflective and self-critical about the type of book that, you know, that we based on our talents could could produce and that obviously the, the world could, could could receive. And we can't sort of land on a book idea and then run with it, even though it may not match our writing style or expertise. Um, and so it's just sort of making sure we're marrying like who we are and our expertise with our book ideas, incredibly important. And then, I, I mean, as a nonfiction writer, um, you know, especially, I do a ton of research and preparation and outlining before I ever start writing. I, I, I personally, once I get to the point in which I'm writing, I want to believe. I want to feel as if literally that's all I'm doing. So I'm not having to think about what I'm going to write. I can just focus on the craft of writing itself. Mm-hmm. And, and that helps me tremendously, you know, to actually write, but it just takes a tremendous amount of preparation. And, and so I would just encourage writers, if you want to go down that route, to really prepare to write like anything else we have to prepare. And, and then finally, I think there's the process of writing the book, and then there's the process of talking about the book uh, and it's almost like a completely different uh, animal Yes. and necessitates different sort of muscles that we sort of have to, have to train us, you know, and use as writers.
1: Yeah. People don't necessarily warn you enough about that. <laughs> they don't. Congratulations. You are now going to be a full-time marketing person. That's your job now. Go ahead have fun. <laughs> Anyway. Well, thank you so much. I really was quite moved by your book. You're such a good writer. Your story is so powerful. Your ideas are powerful. And it's, it's just, it was just really amazing to get a chance to chat with you and all the, discuss all the great things you're doing. So thanks.
0: It's great to to chat with you and and thank you for for your work that you're doing. It's just an incredibly important time. I'm so glad you you have this podcast.
1: Thank you. If you want to talk sports though, so you have to call my husband, but yeah, we have something on every night. I was literally just saying to him last night, I was like, it must be so nice that like you can organize your whole life around like what game is on and that there's always something. And he's like, I almost didn't find something tonight. But then finally I went to this channel and there was this game on. I was like, oh, I'm so I'm so relieved for you. So anyway. All right. Well, take care. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of moms don't have time to read books.